Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. Father, I thank you that your word is true. I thank you that your word washes us, your word cleanses us, and we're transformed through the washing of your word. And I pray this morning for every single heart, every single person here, that you truly would come and transform us and renew our minds by the power of your spirit, that we might be more and more like Jesus. And I pray, Lord, simply as I share this, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for these people. I thank you, Lord, that you are doing an amazing work in all of our hearts and lives, and that you are committed to us more than we are ever committed to you. And so we simply thank you, Lord, for who you are, what you are doing, and I pray now that this word would bring life to people. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know this uh, scripture well, and we're going to read the whole chapter John chapter 15, uh, most of the chapter up to verse 17. I'm reading from the NIV. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. And such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me... And my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciple. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because A servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Then my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. It's an amazing portion. It's a wonderful portion of Scripture. And uh, I'd like to take the next three weeks to look at this, these 17 verses. And I'm going to do a little series called Abundant Fruitfulness. Right? Abundant Fruitfulness. And I don't know about you, but I love traveling to Europe. Europe is an amazing, amazing place, particularly in the summer. If you go to Europe, you drive through France, you drive through Italy, as we've done for the last two or three years, All you see on every hill for miles and miles and miles are amazing vineyards like this one. Beautiful, beautiful vineyards. And the slopes are covered with vineyards. And uh, 
a vineyard needs as much sun as possible, so they always plant the vines on the side of the hill that gathers the most sun. And um, I'm sure you know what a vine looks like, and you can see the trellis is there. A vine has got a thick stem. A vine is normally uh, to about your waist height, and then they put all the branches on trellises, and they tie them so that they can bear fruit. So let's have a look at some pictures of amazing fruit from a vine. Uh, I love grapes. don't know about you. I love to eat them. I also love to drink them. Grapes are wonderful things. Blessing from God. Everything in all creation is a blessing from God. And he has some, just some pictures of trellises of grapes, different colors, different varieties, some white ones as well. Amazing, isn't it? And then, of course, we get the fruit, sometimes in a glass, sometimes on the bunch of grapes. You know what's interesting to me is this is the last, the, this chapter 15 is the, is the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he went to the cross. Do you know that? The context of John 15 is after John 14. And if you read John 14, it's all about them being in the upper room. It's all about them sharing a meal together. And Jesus is, leaves that place and actually he's just told his disciples that he's going to die. And all that they hope for probably has been shattered and the last i imagine he walks down with his disciples and somewhere between the upper room and uh in the next couple of hours they walk through a vineyard and he starts to speak to them the last words that he speaks before he goes to the cross now i don't know about you but if you are know that you're about to die you would deliver to your friends important things as a last kind of wish to them that they might hear your last words would you agree and so that's the context of John 15. It's the last thing that Jesus speaks to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And I believe it's because he was trying to tell them something vital and important about their future and about their eternity that he wanted them to remain in. And so what I want to share with you the next three weeks, it comes out of some of my reading and just meditating on this portion. And also a wonderful little book by Bruce Wilkinson uh, on this chapter and I trust that it's going to be helpful to you, as I believe this season of the church is going to be one of abundant fruitfulness. I believe God is leading us into a fruitful season. I really do. I believe in the new year we're going to see amazing things as we reach out onto the campuses. We're going to see God doing amazing things in people's hearts and people's lives. And this is the heart of Jesus to his disciples after the night he was betrayed. And that's a vital context for us to understand and be aware of. As we read, I believe that Jesus wanted us to understand these words clearly. He wanted us to understand because he wants all of us to enjoy an abundant life. He wants you to enjoy a fruitful life. How many of you have discovered that walking with Jesus and following Jesus sometimes doesn't turn out like you expected? Anyone discovered that? I found the longer that I've walked with Christ Sometimes there's confusion in people's lives. Sometimes there's disillusionment in people's lives by how things have turned out. And if that's you this morning, I want to ask you to listen carefully because I believe that Jesus' words to you at the vineyard will bring life to you. These things that he speaks to his disciples in the vineyard will bring life to you. If there's a pattern in your life, 
of struggling sometimes against God or with God sometimes, if the uh, pattern in your life is marked by disappointment and sometimes doubt and sometimes anger, then I want to say this chapter can be most helpful to you. Most helpful. You see, when we try and approach God on our terms, that always leads to disappointment. But understanding what Jesus is saying to us in this chapter will bring freedom and joy to us as Christians. And God wants from all of us a fruitful harvest. He wants an abundant harvest from all of us. He wants to walk alongside us. He wants to work alongside us to see that happen. And if we understand what Jesus is saying to us in this chapter more clearly, I'm convinced all of us will flourish physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Someone can say amen or I agree. Okay, now I'm not, uh, for those of you that were here last week, Howard Brown is much more kind of uh, clown-like. I'm not like that. So you're just going to have to look for jokes where there are no jokes, all right? But anyway, chapter 15. I want to answer some questions this morning. One, what does Jesus say? What does God say that he wants from us? Well, it's quite clear in John 15, the first two verses. And verse 8, it makes it quite clear to us. It says quite simply that God is interested in fruit in our lives. It says it's to God's glory that we bear fruit. God is interested in fruit. God is interested what comes out of your life. God is interested that it can bring sustenance to others. God is interested in fruit. And don't, let us not dupe ourselves and try and... uh, Pretend that God doesn't want fruitful lives from us as Christians. He desires fruitful lives from us. The scripture says it's to his glory that we bear fruit. He wants us to bear much fruit. And this simple picture, this earthy picture of a vineyard, is the picture that Jesus chooses to try and convey this deep truth to us in a very simple example, that he wants us, like a bunch of grapes, to bear much fruit. And four little things... In the just general introduction comments, one, Jesus is the vine. Very simple. A vine is traditionally, like I said, is kept waist high. It can be thick and gnarled, and all. If you've ever been to vineyard, you see that the branches come out of the end of the vine, and this big stump that looks like nothing produces these amazing branches that all bear great fruit. And the father. Jesus is the vine. The Father is the vine dresser. The, the NIV says gardener. The traditional um, other translations say the vine dresser. Now, the vine dresser is the keeper of the vineyard. He's the one that goes around. He has one single task in mind. Any vineyard you go to, you ask the guy what he's trying to do from the get out of the vine. He'll say to you, I'm getting a maximum yield that I can out of this single vine. I want to get X amount of pounds of grapes out of this vine. This is my single task is to focus my attention on the health of this vine that it produces so much grape. Because I know when it produces abundant harvest, the crop is fruitful and the maximum yield is attained out of the ground that, I'm, that I am uh, tilling. That's the father's job. The father's job is to, is to put all his attention onto the vine and the branches of the vine and maximize the yield out of the branches. That there's a maximum amount of crop out of your life and my life. He wants maximum fruitfulness. It's to his glory. And thirdly, very simply, you and I are the branches. 
And unfortunately, that means that the maximum attention of Father God is on you and I, the branches. <laughs> and so he is very interested in us, okay? He's very interested that we bear fruit. And branches are tied to the trellises. And why are they tied to the trellis? Because they are to be exposed to the maximum sunlight possible, the maximum air possible, the maximum moisture possible, so they can grow healthy and it can yield the maximum that is possible. So the point for me in this introduction is a very simple point. I want to ask you, why on earth would Jesus bother talking about grapes to his disciples when he knew he was about to die? I mean, surely there was something more profound to talk to his disciples about than grapes, to use this picture of grapes. Well, I think this, I think he was trying to show us a new way of looking at things. I think he was trying to show us to see our future, encourage us to see our future from a heavenly perspective. And I want to encourage you this morning to allow God to speak to you about your future from his perspective. Secondly, I want to ask you another question. Well, what is fruit? Because if we are to be fruitful, and it's to our, God's glory that we bear fruit, what is fruit then? How do we recognize it? What do we look for in terms of our own lives? I think part of that is salvation. I think part of what God wants us is to see as many people come into the kingdom as is possible. I think that's true, and that is obvious fruit. But there's no reason to think here that he's just talking about salvation. It's obvious and good fruit that we need to see in our lives. We need to see people saved. And I'm trusting this year as we start to aggressively fan out from this base that God has given us and start aggressively to evangelize, we're going to see much fruit in terms of salvation, young and old. I'm trusting for that that we will see much fruit in terms of salvation. But in the Scripture, if you have a look at the whole of Scripture, it's interesting that fruit and good works are used interchangeably in the New Testament. Now, before you say, I'm trying to get you to to be a person who's earning your salvation by works, I'm not saying that at all, and I'm going to lay a very solid foundation to prove to you that I do not believe that. But at the same time, the Scripture is clear that we need to produce a yield, a crop, a harvest in our lives. That is evidence of our salvation. In fact, Titus says, Titus chapter 3.14 says this, Let our people learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they might not be unfruitful. Titus 3. You see, the disciples would have known as uh, Old Testament, uh, as New Testament people 2,000 years ago, one of the most valuable commodities produced in the ancient world was wine. It was a valuable commodity. They would have understood that it was a a sweet prize for them in terms of their lives, and it would have yielded wealth for them. And as good Jewish believers, they would also have known scriptures like this, Psalm 1 verse 3, which says, The righteous shall be like a tree planted by the river of water, that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf will not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. They would have known that. And when they had looked at the picture of the vine, that would have been something that would have sprung to their minds. They would have understood it. They would have been rooted in it. So for me, in practical terms, fruit in the New Testament represents anything that we do, that we think, in word or in action, that represents God, that God values and brings glory to Him. That is fruit. Whether that's a good 
work that you do for someone, if it's helping an old lady across the road, if it's giving some food to someone who's homeless, if it's providing a job for someone who doesn't have a job, if it's visiting someone in prison, if it's just in your attitude and your thought, creating an environment at home that is loving, that your kids can grow up and see God because you are a good father, that is good work. That does not earn your salvation, but it's a, it's a fruit of salvation in your life. You understand what I'm trying to say? We bear fruit on the inside when we allow God to nurture in us by His Spirit Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. What does Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 say? It says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. When you see those things increasingly in your life, you know that Christ is being formed on the inside of you by His Spirit. And I trust when people come into this church, they will find a gentle, kind, self-controlled environment. Because that's the evidence of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen? But we don't just bear fruit on the inside, we also bear fruit on the outside. As we allow the Holy Spirit, who's transforming us from the inside out, to start working out of us into the community into those around us, into our families, into those that don't know Him. There's outward fruit that brings God glory. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, Paul says this, God is able to make all grace. Can you say all grace? I'm not treating you like children, but I just wanted you to emphasize it. God says He's able to make all grace abound to you and I, an abundance of grace for what purpose? So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in what? In every good work. We are set free by the grace of God. We are transformed from the inside out so that we can live a life that glorifies Him. And He gives us grace. He gives us all that we need to do all that we need to bring glory to Him. Amen. That's the grace of God. Fruit bearing is valuable. Fruit bearing is important. And Jesus said in verse 16 of uh, this chapter we've just read, I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit will remain. So I want to suggest to you this morning, I want to give this to you as a thought to consider that it's our only permanent deposit in heaven is the fruit that we bear. Bearing fruit is the reason that you and I were saved. We weren't just saved for our own sake and that we could be saved, but we were saved that something of eternity would live in us and because eternity is living in us, we want to give that eternity away to other people and we can bear fruit to see others come to Christ, grow up in Him, get strong, not remain babies all their life, and reproduce other believing disciples and Christians. That's why we're on the faith of the planet. Building blocks is not just a babysitting service for mums. If it's a babysitting service for mums, I want to ask the girls to stop doing it because it's not a babysitting service for, for mums on a Friday morning. It's, it's a vehicle for the kingdom to come. It's a vehicle that people can come and see in those ladies that they are raising their kids in a certain way because they believe the living Christ is in them. And He wants to bless people through their lives. That's why we do it. 
the businessman's thing on a Monday night is not just simply so we can get guys to run better businesses. If you want to run your business better, well, then go to a business seminar. If you want to maximize your profit, if that's all you're interested in, then go to a businessman's seminar. What we're trying to say in that thing is that actually our, our businesses can be used for the kingdom. That it's not about us. That perhaps Petri getting a deal with the queen is going to open up something where he can speak into their lives. Isn't that an amazing opportunity? It's not just about being better at business. It's about using the business that we have for kingdom values and purposes. And I don't want to just single out people for for sake of that. But the, the, the fact that we've got guys in this church that play rugby for Saracens, either they can say, well, that's just how I earn my living, or they can say, well, God, you've gifted me with this thing. I'm going to take what I have. I'm going to speak into those guys' lives and challenge by my lifestyle. I'm going to challenge into the sporting arena and speak of Christ into the sporting arena. (sighs) Amen. Whatever your area of gifting is, that's the thing that needs to be given back to Christ. It's, it's fruitful. That's what is going to bear fruit for Him. Bring glory to Him. Ephesians 2 verse 10, that great, great book, Ephesians 2 verse 10. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. <laughs> you were created in Christ for good works. Do your good works save you? No, they don't. Your good works are like filthy rags, the Scripture says. But you were saved by grace so that out of your life you might produce something for the kingdom. Not just so that we can say we're saved. Hallelujah. It's great that we're saved. I'm so thankful that Christ found me. I didn't go looking for him. He came looking for me. That's what the scripture says. And he found me and he changed me. I'm so grateful for that. But in response to that, I want to say, God, I give you myself. I give you my life. I give you the best years of my life. And I want my life to be fruitful for the kingdom. Four levels of fruitfulness. Can we just look at four levels of fruitfulness out of chapter 15? What do you think the scripture says? When, when you read those first couple of verses, it says four levels of fruitfulness. What are they? Yeah. Sorry? P- pruning? Yeah? Sorry? No, I'm talking about, it says, it says this. There's every branch that does not bear any fruit. So there's some, some branches that don't bear any fruit. Then it says there are some branches that bear some fruit. And then it says there are some branches that bear more fruit. And it says there's some that bear much fruit. There's four levels of fruitfulness that Jesus speaks of. No fruit. You can be a branch that's not bearing fruit. You can be a branch that is bearing a little fruit. You can be a branch that's bearing much fruit, and then you can be a branch that's bearing abundant fruit. Okay? God wants us all to be fruitful, and I believe something of the process in our lives is God that, that God wants to take us from a place of bearing little fruit to be bearing abundant fruit. And the question that you and I have to ask ourselves this morning, and I simply want to ask you to ask it right now of yourself, how much fruit are you bearing? Now that might be an uncomfortable question, but it's something we have to look at square in the face 
and address it in our own lives. And how do we learn to become more fruitful? Because that should be the desire of all of our hearts, to become more fruitful. And I'd like to address the first, the first um, kind of uh, illustration that Jesus uses. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Or in uh, the NIV verse 2, it says, he cuts off every branch in me that does not bear any fruit. Now, I, that, I must be honest with you, that puzzles me. When I read that, I thought, well, that's, that's really strange. Because most of the other New Testament that I know speaks in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, for example. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Ephesians 2 verse 10. Philippians 3 verse 9. Verses like that. And Paul goes to great pains to say that we are in Christ. We are in Him. And in fact, if you read the context of this chapter, it says that we are in the vine. So how can we be in the vine and cut off at the same time? I don't know if that's possible. How can we be in Christ and then cut off? Does it mean that if we don't bear fruit, we're not Christians? I don't think that it's meaning that at all. I don't think it's talking about salvation. We are in Christ. But we, it is possible that we can be in Christ and be a branch at the same time that is not bearing fruit. And so I don't know about you, but uh, there have been times in my life that bear testament to that. Sometimes in my life where I feel dry, I feel like unfruitful, I feel like I'm not achieving things in the kingdom like I want to. And there are other times when it's so easy. Yeah. When it's just like God is using you and it, there's this kind of sweet stream from the Holy Spirit inside of you. And everything you say and everything you do, it's just like it's bearing fruit everywhere. Ephesians 2 tells us this. It says, By grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You're all with me. You all understand. I'm saying we are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift that comes from God. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we can work at. It's a gift of grace to us so that no one can boast that it's from themselves. It's a gift from God. Amen? We are in, in Him. And in that context, I want to address this verse 3 because that's the confusing verse for me. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. How can that be? If we are in Christ, if we are saved by grace through faith. Well, I think we can find the answer in two parts. And, and, and uh, again, I want to encourage you to be a student of this word. And I want to encourage you to take what I'm saying and go and read for yourself and see if what I'm saying is true. All right? The first part of the answer is this. If you go and find a Greek concordance and have a look at those scriptures, those words, the Greek word used and translated cuts off in verse 2 is a Greek word, Aero, A-I-R-O, Aero, not the chocolate, Aero, but air with an O added on it, Aero. And the word is translated cut off here, but actually, if you look at the context of other places where it's used in the New Testament, it's an unhelpful translation, because that same word is used in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14, where it says, after Jesus performs this amazing miracle, the disciples take up 12 baskets. They take up. It's the same Greek word there, ero. It's also used when Simon is forced to carry the cross. It says he took up the cross of Jesus and carried it. Same word, ero. It's also used 
when John the Baptizer describes Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes up, who takes away the sin of the world. Ero, same word. John 1.29. And it seems to me that this is a very unhelpful translation here because here, it, it actually says something that the Scripture does not intend it to say. It should read that it doesn't, it's not that he cuts off those that are not bearing fruit, it's that he lifts up those who are not bearing fruit. And if you think particularly in the, in the, with the analogy of the vineyard, any vine dresser will tell you that new branches, they have a tendency to grow down. And they fall on the floor. And they get dirty. And when they get dirty and they're full of mud, they don't produce fruit. So what does the vine dresser do? He takes a bucket and he, f- he finds the new branches that are trailing on the ground. He washes them off. He cleans them and he puts them back on the trellis and he ties them up so that they can bear maximum fruit. That's what a vine dresser does. And so what I'm trying to say to you, the first part of us bearing fruit is not that we are cut off, it's that we are lifted up by the living Christ. And he washes us off and he cleans us off by the power of his Holy Spirit and he cleanses us and he ties us back and he makes sure we're in place and he says, now you can start bearing fruit. Amen. That should encourage you. You are in Christ. You'll never not be in Christ. Once you're saved, you're in Christ. And when, you are, when he wants you to start bearing fruit, if you're not bearing fruit, he'll lift you up. And he'll say, my son, there's sin in your life. I want you to wash that, allow me to wash that sin away. And then he washes that sin away by the power of his blood. And we start to bear fruit. The second part of the answer, I've already um, told you, and in in that is the picture of the vine dresser picking up the vine, picking up the branches. And that's a powerful picture. It's a powerful illustration of the process of God in our lives. Sin is like dirt. Sin is like, it stops the sunlight getting in. It stops the air getting to us, sin. And when we're covered in it, we can't experience the sunshine of God. We can't experience the power of the Holy Spirit and the air that God wants us to breathe. We can't enjoy and we can't bear fruit. And so he picks us up. He lifts us off the, 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 the ground. He washes us by the power of His Spirit. And when we learn to, embrace, learn to embrace that process in our lives, we will start to bear fruit. As good branches should bear fruit. You still with me? And then I also want to say this out of that little verse. That God lifts us up. But God also intervenes to discipline us. How many of you have experienced pain in your life in the last year? <laughs> pain. Wow, I wish we didn't experience pain as Christians, eh? But uh, I want to say this to you. I'm learning more and more that some pain is good. I'm not trying to be contentious. I'm just trying to say some pain is good. I don't know about you, but um, do you have little codes around your dinner table with your children? No, you don't. Not yet. Well, Jim, I want to tell you, James, I mean, Jim, you should, you should develop some codes that communicate to your children that discipline is coming because they're very helpful. So perhaps you're around the dinner table like we are sometimes and maybe one of your children is misbehaving and you give them the ah. That's like the first code that actually if you don't change your behavior, there's something else is going to happen. And sometimes they, they don't get it. So you have to up the level of intention and in terms of what you're communicating. So you give them the eye, they, don't, they carry on. 
So maybe then you give them the finger, which is the next level of discipline. Which means, my son, I love you, but the hand of understanding is going to be applied to the seat of learning if you do not change your behavior. And sometimes they don't even get that. And then you're forced to intervene further. Levels of discipline. And that's why I'm saying that some pain in our lives, I'm not saying God causes pain, but I'm saying that God sometimes uses pain to get our attention. It's like there's something in your life that you know is a little bit out of place. It's like God is giving you the eyebrow. He's saying, I'm trying to get your attention. He's giving you the eyebrow, and we don't get it. We just carry on like nothing happened. And then there's a little bit more pain, and it's a little bit more painful, and it's like God is just taking his finger and saying, my son, please, change this. And we don't respond. We just carry on like nothing's happening. If there's a process of pain in your life that's been going on for a long time, I want to suggest to you this morning that maybe, maybe it's not just your circumstances. Maybe it's just not life forcing things upon you. Maybe it's God trying to get your attention and allowing pain to get your attention. Now, I want to say this. Uh, Deuteronomy 8 verse 5 says, As a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. I want to say this. Discipline very seldom feels good for the child. I want to suggest to you also that it seldom feels good for the father either. I don't know any of you that are fathers. How many of you love disciplining your kids? It's like the thing you, you really want to do, you know? get up in the morning and think, ah, today I'm going to discipline my boys. You don't, you, no one likes to, dis, to, to discipline. But I want to suggest to you, thirdly, I believe discipline is the way of committed love. No one likes it. We as children of our Father in Heaven, we don't like it. I'm not sure that a father likes to give discipline, but it is the way of committed love. And if we go to Hebrews chapter 12, please, I just want to speak to you briefly out of that. And then we've done two verses, and that's all I want to do today. Then we're going to break bread. God disciplines his sons. Verse 5 and 6 says this. My son, do not... Uh, sorry, let me just... Uh, verse 5, going back to the beginning. And you have forgotten the word of God, or a word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Jesus is addressing us as sons in this portion. He's saying, I'm addressing you as sons. My son... You've got to be rooted in the fact that you're a son or daughter of the Most High God. You know, if, you, if, if we're not rooted in the fact that we are sons and daughters, whenever any pain happens in our lives, we're going to think that God is punishing us. It's never the intention of God to punish us in that way. Are you with me? He's the God of love. Can I just say something to you? I don't believe God brings sickness on people's lives at all. I do not believe that. But I want to tell you, honestly and vulnerably this morning, one of the most learning processes of my life has been in the last six months as my mom passed away from cancer. It was one of the most, most painful and yet fruitful times of my life. Can you understand that? I am not saying that God allows or wants sickness on people's lives. I'm not saying that at all. Sickness is a curse from the devil. It is. And Helen and I were watching that uh, movie the other night, um, the Bucket List. Have you seen that movie? Oh, what an amazing movie. It's about two men, one played by Morgan Friedman and the one played by Jack Nicholson. 
They, they're in their 60s or 70s, and they meet in hospital, and they both have been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, well, if we knew what the movie was about, we probably wouldn't have watched it anyway. But uh, it's a brilliant, it's a wonderful story. So they have this list, uh, the, all the things they want to do before they kick the bucket, basically. So that's why it's called the bucket list. It's to write down all these adventures they want to live before they die. And it's, a, it's an amazing story. Well, I, I was finished, I, just obviously because of my, my mom passing away. But, but God uses the circumstances of our life to teach us things that he wants to teach us. And I've got to live in the tension of that. I do not believe sickness comes from God, but I believe in the process that God does things in us. Are you with me? So I want to make that clear. <laughs> Three things we learn from the scripture in, verse, uh, in Hebrews. One, God is the source of discipline. Two, God disciplines all believers. All believers. There's not one of us who's exempt from discipline. He, thirdly, he always acts out of love. In fact, I want to say to you this morning that I believe the Scripture says that evidence of our sonship is that God is at work in our lives disciplining us. It's an evidence that you are His son. It says if you don't experience that in, in your life, you are an illegitimate son. You are not a true son. Man, that blows some theology. Why? What does God want to do? Well, He wants to, where we are being wayward, He wants to correct us. He wants to lift us up. He wants to wash us off and cleanse us and take the necessary measures to correct us as a vine dresser corrects the vine so that we can bear maximum fruit in our lives. And what does it say in verse 11? It says, um, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness. There's again the word, to use the agricultural word. A harvest of righteousness that produces peace and righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Wow. That this process that God uses in our lives, it produces harvest, it produces peace, and it trains us. The other thing I want to just say that I find so refreshing from this passage is that discipline doesn't have to continue. You and I get to choose how long the discipline sometimes lasts for. You get it? If we would just respond to the eyebrow of God the first time, we wouldn't have to go to the wagging finger. But some of us are so stubborn that when God is trying to get our attention, say, my son, I love you. And because I love you, I'm not going to let you cross the road in front of the truck. How many of you allow your children to walk in front of a truck because out of love you don't want to bring any discipline? No, you don't. You grab them. You say, my son, don't do that. It's going to kill you. And sometimes God is doing the same things in our lives. He's just grabbing us and saying, my son, don't go there. Don't do that. Not the click on the mouse again. Please don't do it. It's not for your good. And we don't listen. We don't listen. We don't listen. We don't get the eyebrow. And then he's got to wag his finger. And then he gets a little bit more sore. Oh, God. You know, C.S. Lewis, amazing, amazing theologian. He said this. I'm going ahead of myself. He said, God whispers through pleasure but shouts through pain. When there's a lot of pain, God is shouting to get your attention. Best we listen. There's pain in your marriage. If there's been pain in your marriage for years and years and years, perhaps God is saying, I want you to change some things. Perhaps you haven't listened to the little wink of the eyebrow. Perhaps, perhaps there's actually something that's now being escalated to another level because we haven't heard. Are you with me? 
I want us to worship and break bread, so, but can I just pick three words out of Hebrews 12? There are these three little levels, and uh, I've already hinted at what I've been trying to say to you in the last 10 minutes. Um, there are three words used, rebuke. My son, do not be disguised when you are rebuked by the Lord. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Other translations say, when, do not lose heart when he rebukes you. That's the eyebrow that I've mentioned. And you know, I think that's the way that God speaks to us most, most of all. It can be through the preaching of the word. It can be just through a prick in your conscience where you know you're just alone with him and you just know he's talking to you about something. It's like he's just rebuking you. And they're all cues or from the Holy Spirit in our lives that God is trying to get our attention. And that's, by, for me, by far the most common way that God disciplines us as his family. And the key, my friends, is if we open our ears and keep our hearts soft, we can manage this process of God in our lives, intervening our lives in a less intense way. Amen? Secondly, he uses the word, uh, verse 6, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Uh, Old-fashioned translations use this word chasten. Same word there. Because the Lord chastens those who he loves. You know, that's where you start to feel a greater anxiety, a greater frustration or level of distress in your life. And the pressure seems to be on the increase all around. It's almost like the rebukes haven't worked and now God is turning up the, turning up the, the gas a little bit. Perhaps you've for a long time felt unfulfilled in church. Perhaps you're critical of others. Perhaps reading the word is more of a drag to you than it is a joy. Perhaps your relationship with God seems lethargic, lacking passion. I want to suggest to you that at that point, you don't try harder. So often we try harder. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up at five, and I'm really going to pray. And I, No, no, no. Perhaps, perhaps God is just trying to say, my son, there's something in the heart there. I just want you to deal with that. And when you deal with that, there's a freedom that comes. That's the most amazing thing, and it's a, it's a spirit-led freedom. Are you with me? And now for all the politically correct people in the, in the room, this is a terrible one. This is terrible. I don't even want to say this, but here the Scripture says this. And he punishes everyone that he accepts as a son. He punishes everyone. In fact, the old translations say scourge. He scourges everyone he calls a son. Do you know what a scourging is? It's a whipping. I mean, what is that? I mean, I can't get around that. That verse causes me to stumble right there and then. My Father in heaven scourges sons. How can that be? How can that be? Doesn't that make you a little bit uncomfortable? Or am I the only one? That is the word used when it says before he was crucified, he was scourged. Jesus was scourged. That speaks to me of intense pain, absolutely unbearable pain. That is very strong language. That is not politically correct language. I mean, child protection would be on all, all of us if we used that language. Isn't that right? I mean, and rightly so. We, so what is God trying to say? What is God trying to say out of that? I, I, I want to suggest to you that sometimes when, we, when we've ignored the first two processes of God in our lives, 
God has to shout to get our attention. And the way that he shouts is that he allows intense pain for a season that you would listen to him. Why? Because God takes long-term sin seriously. Paul understood that well. And if you know anything of church history and you look at the Corinthian church, which was a church full of the gifts, where Paul has to say, look, just be careful how you use the gift. There's evidence of much of the gifts of the Spirit in the church, but it's an immature church. It's a church that hasn't dealt with sin. It's a church where a man is sleeping with his mother-in-law. That's how, what the church is like in Corinth. And Paul knew that. He said this in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, that people are living in sin and just carrying on like it's not a problem at all. And he says, at the same time, you come to the Lord's table and you break bread like nothing is happening. And what does he say in that chapter in, in Corinthians 11? He says, some of you have grown sick. In fact, some of you have even died because you have not taken the table of the Lord seriously. He treats sin seriously. And sometimes he gets our attention by allowing pain that is intense because he wants to speak and he wants his kindness, wants to lead us to repentance. Are you with me, guys? In the last year, I've seen this. God never hurts innocent people indirectly by disciplining a, sin, a sin, sinful word. In other words, he, he doesn't let someone die of cancer because there's sin in your life. He's not that kind of God. You hear me? I'm not saying that. Secondly, when God disciplines us, it's never out of anger. It's not out of impatience. It's not out of meanness. It's because he loves us and he's got us a harvest in mind for our lives. Thirdly, God offers opportunities for each of us to respond to him right up until the moment that we go to be with him in heaven. He's all, his mercy is always extended to us. You see, something of the answer to some of these questions that I'm trying to throw out to you this morning is, is, is answered in this little phrase, that I think sometimes we suffer because we have incorrect beliefs that we are listening to. In our lives, incorrect voices, wrong voices that are speaking louder than the Word of God. And here are some examples of some things that I'm trying to say. Perhaps you find yourself thinking this the pain and negative circumstances in my life is all the result of natural consequences. They're not, nothing is a result of my choices. Perhaps you think like this. God would not discipline me ongoingly. He's much too loving and forgiving for that. He won't intentionally allow pain to stop me from sinning. Incorrect theology. Let me, let, let's be honest. Let's be honest. I enjoy the so-called sin. I enjoy the so-called sin in my life. In fact, I think the benefit that I'm getting for that sin far outweighs any spiritual benefit I might get from stopping it. And anyway, I'm not hurting anybody by doing it. It's not really sin. Incorrect theology. I can't help myself. It's something that goes back to my childhood. God just extends grace to me. and he doesn't, He's not going to impose discipline on me. God's a gracious God. Why would he do that? Fifthly, it doesn't really matter. God can still use a crooked stick. He can use, use someone who's not perfectly aligned in every way. I can still do, do stuff for God. It doesn't really matter. I can just carry on. And then lastly, it's not sin. It's just a weakness. It's just a weakness of my character. It's just part of my personality. It's just part of my personality. It's just how God has made me. It's just who I am. If you catch yourself using those kind of phrases in your life, 
what we're really saying is that we don't think sin has a consequence in our lives. And that God won't mind. In fact, it doesn't matter if I don't stop. It's actually not a sin. I want to encourage you this morning that you discard those lies in your life and you embrace the truth in your life. And it all starts with this wonderful, joyful, biblical word called repentance. That's such, that, is, that phrase should be such a joyful phrase in your and our lives, that we can repent. And all that means is that the minus numbers in our lives, when we repent, all the stuff that's bringing us minus numbers, it doesn't just bring us back to square. When we repent, we go immediately into the positive. Immediately. That's how God is. It multiplies the blessing of God compoundly in our lives. That's a wonderful thing. It's not like you just get back to zero. You get to plus 50 when you repent. Plus 100. That's how God is. And for me, repentance is an on. We are saved by grace through faith. Uh, we are justified instantly at that moment. We are seen by Christ as having no sin. But then an ongoing way, as the Holy Spirit moves in our lives, and he points out things, we, in the moment we say, Lord, I'm sorry. Why don't you just come again and wash me? I want to be set free from this thing. And we walk forward, being transformed by, from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit. That should be a joyful thing in our lives. Repentance. It's the first step in the process of becoming more fruitful. And that's God's wish for all of us that we'd have abundant lives of fruitfulness. This season, I'm convinced, my friends, this season is going to be an abundant season for this church in every way. In your life, in my life, in seeing people saved, having impact in the kingdom, uh, into the community. But it has to start with us coming to that place of saying, Lord, whatever you want to teach me, I'm not going to ignore the eyebrow. I'm going to just, I'm going to pay attention to the eyebrow because I don't want to go through anything else. Are you with me? We don't have to go through a whole process if we just respond to God instantly when we see him trying to get our attention. Amen? I want to ask the musicians to come. I want us to worship out of response to the word that I've preached. And then we're going to break bread together. And I want, to, I want to ask that as we break bread together later, that you really do business with God in your own life. You know, I, I have to say this last life, God has pointed out many, many things in me that need to change. Many. And I'm not some kind of masochist who's just like not happy with I'm I'm happy with my life. I love my life. You hear what I'm saying? I'm not looking for problems, but I'm just saying God is pointing out things, saying, My son, I love you, and that thing, it's you've had friends, you've made friends with that thing too long in your life. It needs to change. By the power of the Holy Spirit in me. Are you with me? Let's stand and worship. Father, I want to thank you for your words. I want to thank you that you want us to bear fruitful lives. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we worship, it won't be with an intensity, with an inward-lookingness, but it will be a joy, a joy in our hearts because you have set us free. Lord, I pray there will be a lightness in us as we worship, as we look to the cross and are just so thankful for the cross of Christ and all that you've done in our hearts and our lives. As we break bread, Lord, let there be joy in people's hearts as we celebrate the goodness and the kindness of Christ to us. And I pray, Lord, that we not ignore the little nudgings of your Holy Spirit any longer in our lives, that we respond instantly and quickly to them because you want to lead us on to be more and more fruitful. We want to be rooted in your kindness and in your goodness, Lord, so that we can be fruitful and bear fruitful lives for you. And so I simply 
ask now for this time of worship. We want to touch heaven with our songs. We want to touch your heart, Lord. And we want to be transformed. And so we thank you for the reality of your presence in our lives. And ask that you'd come and do that now. Simply as we worship you. As we respond to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you, Jesus.